Blog Talk Radio. You know, every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. You know what I'm saying? Every time I speak, I want to shiver. You know, I don't want them to be like, they know what I'm going to say because it's polite. They know what I'm going to say. And even if I get in trouble, you know what I'm saying? That ain't that what we're supposed to do. It's, I'm not saying I'm going to rule the world or I'm going to change the world, but I guarantee that I will spark the, the, the brain that will change the world. to have personal responsibility, political accountability, and corporate culpability. Get up, 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 get up. We must eliminate poverty. I don't care what color the person or child. Get up, get up. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Latrice Ross. And welcome to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We are the return of intelligent radio as we ensure the free flow of opinions and push the envelope on the questions America's afraid to ask in the mainstream media. Good morning to all the truth seekers and good morning to you, Latrice, as well as my special guest, on the line with us this morning, but I'm going to say hello to you, Queen, and then I'll introduce our special guest this morning. How are you doing, Queen? Fantabulous. How are you? Hey, doing great. Glad to have you back with us. As you always are built to peel back these difficult conversations that we feel, that I always say we are the best in the world at having hard conversations on race and sex, and I think to this morning's question will qualify as one. But before we even introduce the discussion question this morning, let me go ahead and introduce you to our special guest. We all have also have on the line with us returning a couple of returning guests, actually. Um, Ali Palmer, how are you doing this morning, King, and as well as Scott Waters. Um, hello to both of you. If y'all will say hello to Latrice, and I'll let y'all introduce yourselves. How y'all doing this morning, King? Kings. Brother, good morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, Ali here. Thank you for having me back, Montoya. The treats. I appreciate uh, being on. I know it's going to be a really great session. Um, just very quickly about me, uh, born and raised in Florida, and went to West Point for my uh, undergraduate, and then spent 10 years in the Army as an engineer and a ranger, and then went to Harvard Business School and spent a few years as a, a civilian operations leader, and now that's what I do uh, on a civilian side. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. And culturally, I am the product of a mixed race. My mother, is, her family is from Pakistan and black, and my father is black, so I myself am a, I'm a biracial child. And then uh, we can get into a little bit of detail around uh, my wife and my kids. But wonderful to be on the show. Look forward to a great discussion. And I thank you. Also on the line with us is a good friend of mine, a brother I went to school with myself, um, Scott Waters. Um, he's actually on the road, so if y'all hear some of that in the background, it may be what it is. 
But, Scott, thank you for being back with us this morning. And just to kind of let me go ahead and throw the discussion question out there for those who haven't seen the promotion from this week so they'll understand why Ali even mentioned his uh, biracial background. Today's discussion is interracial children, are they black or white? And Scott, again, a good friend of mine who is biracial himself, I'll start kind of lead with that. But if you will, say hello to all the true seekers uh, and, and, and give a little bit of your background as well. Thanks for being with us, Scott. Yes, sir, absolutely, man. Smith, always an honor to talk to you. Uh, it was it was a great surprise hearing from you this morning, so uh, I, I'm glad to be here. Um, a little bit about myself, uh, uh, you know my name. Um, I went to school at the Air Force Academy. Uh, I was born and raised in the uh, D.C. and Maryland area. I uh, started out within D.C., moved out to uh, Seat Pleasant just outside of the district, uh, and then jumped the bay and went over to the, uh, to the sticks, as we like to call it. Um, uh, yeah, and so that's, that's kind of where my beginnings were. Uh, my, my dad, he, uh, he's biracial himself. He's, uh, black and Native American. Um, however, he was adopted by, uh, black parents. And, uh, my, mo- my mother, she's, uh, Mexican with, uh, Spanish background. So that, you know, that's kind of where, where I'm coming from in this. Can you hear me okay, Smith? Yeah, you're coming through loud and clear, brother. Yeah, we just let you get it all out. Yeah. Thanks, my king. Yeah, very Absolutely. good. Yeah, and so, and so as, as you know, as I look at myself, uh, you know, I, I don't see just the biracial, uh, but you know, it's a multiracial uh, type thing going on here, and um, uh, so I, I look forward to talking about it. Uh, absolutely. As I've already said, let the cat out the bag. We'll say it again this morning's discussion question. Interracial children, are they black or white? And as you hear, we have a, a, a definitely some guests that are definitely in tune to this discussion, Ali specifically. Um, again, he's, he kind of mentioned it, but I just want to make it clear for all the audience. He is, you know, in addition to his own uh, multi, multi-ethnic background, he is the father of a biracial child. So definitely got some great perspectives. Um, Latrice, I'm actually going to start with you, as we typically do, we start with the, the queen of the morning. And so um, as we always do, you know, we haven't discussed this at all together. We do it live on the air. And so I'll ask, you know, in hearing the discussion question, what were your first thoughts? My first thoughts as a parent, um, I went to thinking about how parents feel about their kids and the interactions that they have with the world, and I know that it's difficult having friends who um, have multi-ethnic children. Um, just the difficulty, particularly in times like now where we have such an intense racial divide, um, a child whose mother or father is one race and you know the other parent the other, they have a difficult time deciding what's right, what's wrong, and how do I fit in. And I think that... Um, Race relations are difficult, but I, I actually feel that it's a little bit more difficult for children um, that are biracial. And so that's where my thought process went to a lot of the emotional turmoil that they must go through. No, fair enough. And so I'll get a quick thought from both Ali and Scott um, before we go to our initial break. And it's kind of the same question to you guys. I obviously asked for you to come on the show, and, again, we don't go deep into what we're going to discuss. So, Ali, uh, when I said, hey, would you be willing to be on this show, what were your first thoughts? What resonated with me real strong, Montoya, is my own personal story. I think we often do that. We hear a topic, a subject, we see something happening in the world, and we find ways to tie it to how it relates to us. 
personally or professionally. And growing up as a, a biracial child in Orlando, Florida, it, it was uh, not as much, as much of an anomaly because of the Latino community down there and a uh, little bit of the, the mixed races that already existed in the, in the early 90s. And nowadays I find it even a little bit more tolerant depending on the part of the geography of the country that you're in. So with my son, who is, who is half black, half white, I thought to myself, wow, you know, what a relevant topic as the world continues to evolve and change and how important this is going to be to both educate people about some of these topics and the sensitivities of them and also to hear these multiple different, sometimes contradictory perspectives around this. And it'll be interesting as we get a little more detail because my wife actually feels quite differently about some aspects of this subject than I do. And, you know, she is white and I'm black. Obviously, that, that forms a good internal debate here in our house as to what we tell our children and how we raise them. So I think that'll be some good fodder for discussion. Thanks. No, I love it. Um, Scott, got about a minute for break, but you just got pulled in this morning. You kind of saved the day as a couple of my guests were unable to come on this morning. So thank you for uh, basically filling in the gap. So you can make yours quick because you right. haven't had a lot of time to think about this morning's discussion question. So uh, just any thought that you right. had, I, I said, hey, brother, I need you. Yep, 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 yep. So, yeah, what was your well, first thought? I'm sorry, I missed you, King. I'm sorry, I was no. talking over you. I'm sorry. No problem. Well, look, I mean, all I got to say is it, it is it – is, uh, an adjustment in different phases of your life. So when you're younger, uh, you know, how I reacted and what I saw is differently than as I got older and reached my teenage years. Um, and and uh, different than uh, the other gentleman living in Orlando in, in the Maryland area that where I was, it was more black or white, you know. And so it, it, it was very, you know, this or that type thing. So even though I got a lot of races in my background, you know, you're either looked at as black or you're looked at as white. Uh, fair enough. Uh, thank you, for again, for all of you for being on. We're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, we're going to get into a little history of this um, discussion in America specifically, and it's kind of a perfect segue, Scott, um, in the sense we're doing the black or white. We'll definitely evolve the conversation as the show goes um, into other arenas, but that is the ultimate dichotomy in this country, of course, right, the difference between black and white when it comes to these discussions. So let's go to a quick break. When we come back, let's get into a little history. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. Well, all I ask is that you think we'll be right back. Where did you get that hat and t-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at MoneyMotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes. And I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit. And what I like the most, it's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made $0 an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. Everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk. Cause I look like money, smell like money, talk like money. 
Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Sniper Tees, along with special guest co-host Latrice Ross. Special guest on the line with me this morning, Ali Palmer, as well as Scott Waters. This morning's discussion question, interracial children, are they black or white? Thank you all again for being on this morning. But I wanted to start with a, some uh, history lesson, per se. And uh, as I was doing the research, um, I learned a couple things myself. Uh, and for those who listen quite often, I consider myself somewhat of a historian and a philosopher. Um, and so, um, but again, when you dig into history, you learn things yourself. So I wanted to kind of share some actual statements that I saw. I was kind of going to read them verbatim. And I just wanted to hear everybody's thoughts on uh, it's going to be a couple of statements, but we're going to start with one, get some thoughts, and then do the next statement. Um, again, it's just when you think of this discussion, the first thing that came to my mind, again, I'm always thinking of a historical perspective anyway, so to say here, you know, my thoughts, I thought about the infamous one-drop rule that we, in a sense, hear about. Um, don't know if you've learned it or studied it in your history, wherever you may have went to school, but in a sense, even in hearing of the rule, I realized that for the most part, and, and for those who may have never heard of it, um, the one-drop rule is, in, in, particularly in America, is if you had one drop of African ancestry, then you were considered black. Like, that's kind of how I, in a sense, had learned the one-drop rule, per se. And in learning it, not necessarily in school, but just kind of hearing it in life, the assumption was that it applied a long time in American history. So when I had to actually go research it for this show, come to find out that that one drop rule was ne- was actually never really legal until the 20th century, uh, which is the 19th, you know, the 1900s per se. And so that was unique to me because in hearing it, I assumed it applied all the way back, in a sense, from the beginnings of um, you know American history as we know it today, um, you know, as of you know 400 years ago per se. But anyway, that's I wanted to share um, again. Some, some actual thoughts, and I'll get all of your thoughts on this. So here's the first comment. In, in the antebellum years, which is pretty much considered the, year, the, um, the years before the Civil War, free people of mixed race were considered legally white if individuals had less than one-eighth or one-quarter African ancestry, depending on the state. Many mixed-race people were absorbed into the majority of culture based simply on appearance, association, and carrying out community responsibilities. What was unique in this history with this part for me was finding out, and I'm, I'm assuming most of you may have heard of Thomas Jefferson. People always talk about the mixed-race children that Thomas Jefferson had with uh, one of his enslaved, um, by the, her name was by the name of Sally Hemings. Uh, she was actually three-quarters white. I didn't know that until, you know, researching it for the show. So in a sense, she was, his, she was you know, enslaved by him. She was three-quarters white, but he ended up having some, you know, children, by her, this was unique, and then I'll get all y'all thoughts. Since their children were born into slavery because of her status, as they were seven-eighths European in ancestry, they were legally white under Virginia law at the time, uh, but based on her status, they had to be enslaved. Jefferson allowed two oldest to escape in 1822. Uh, Let's see here. The two youngest he freed in 1826. Three of the four entered white society as adults, and all of their descendants identify as white. I share that history because, again, I was surprised to find out the one-drop rule didn't apply until the 1900s. Didn't realize that. But I share this specifically because for all of the things that we're going to end up discussing in today's time and currently y'all experiences 
you know, one as a parent and, and, and one, you know, in a sense specifically being multi-ethnic in a, in a lot of cases. The history is, is alarming what that decision or what you identify with back then could have meant whether you were free or not and just taking it all the way back to that history and hearing that. Um, Latrice, we'll start with you again. Uh, what are your thoughts and just the information I've laid? And again, I, I, in a sense, I hate to in a sense, give this monologue, but I definitely want to start with the history of this country and hear people's thoughts because I was surprised to learn some of this myself. Go ahead, Cole. I was, at, I was actually surprised as you, as you discussed it. I, um, I didn't realize that, that I, too, that's how I heard about the one-drop rule, that if you had one drop of black blood, you were considered to be black, and I didn't realize that it didn't come into law until the 1900s. Um, I find it surprising that during those times that they actually considered them to be white. But again, as I as I say that, it doesn't surprise me considering that during their time they thought that and still do in some instances feel that they are in a sense superior to black people. So if I've mixed my blood with yours, that then now makes you a superior being as well. So um, while I'm surprised that it didn't come into effect, then I'm curious and I'm probably going to go dig around why it came into effect at that time. Um, instead, you know, what made, what precipitated that change is what I'm curious about. But yeah, I was surprised. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll try to mention a little bit that I learned in reference to that, but I'm going to go ahead and get um, Ali, we'll start with you. Um, your thoughts on just hearing that information, did you know any of that? Is that new to you? And again, just kind of putting this morning's conversation in context of history, and then we'll move it forward, um, you know, after we kind of discuss this. Go ahead, Kim. Yeah, um, a couple of surprising things in there around the 1% piece, which I grew up kind of hearing and understanding. I didn't realize it had its roots, you know, quite that far back, and, and how detailed and specific it was. Um, I, I, I believed it was more of an unwritten rule. You get a little bit of black in you, that means you're black. And that was a controversial point that was discussed around a lot of different circles, as, as you know, particularly as I was growing up. What occurs to me, and I, I hope we get into it a little bit, is the difference between what's actually in your genes and your biology versus your culture and how you are actually raised. And I think more and more as we get, you know, uh, progress into the later parts of the 20th and 21st century, uh, with certainly with this movement around different identities and transgenderisms and how people are trying and how the new generations are seeing different social identities. I wonder how it's going to morph from, you know, what you actually have inside of your body versus your societal conditioning. So that's kind of something that's triggered. I realize it's a couple steps ahead, but that's, that's how I felt about that. One no, absolutely. Again, yeah, 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 absolutely. Scott, um, anything for you for hearing that? I don't know if it's for the first time or did you know that history, but any thoughts from you after hearing that? Well, I have I have heard that before, uh, and to me, it's not. It, it was never anything that was surprising when you when you hear people talk about purity, and you know, and, and you know, the purity like that, especially uh, with the happenings over in uh, over in Europe during World War Two. Um, but, uh, you know, really what it comes down to, just like uh, Ollie was saying, you know, it, it, it has a lot to do with your upbringing, uh, what you're taught specifically, and, and it also has a little bit to do with acceptance. You know, are you accepted with one race or another? Uh, you know, how are you looked upon uh, by one race or the other? And that has a lot to do with the people that you are just surrounded by. So, uh, you know, sometimes you don't have the choice as to who you hang out with or who, who you're brought up with, uh, but you do have a choice on who you pick as friends and how you're 
and how you're accepted. So it all plays mm-hmm. into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Ali, did you have something? No, that resonated with me, what Scott said. Um, I think a lot of times when we do frame the argument, we put it in the context of the choice that we have. Well, I choose to identify here or I'm culturally aware so I can call myself this and I'm comfortable with that. But as you are a child and you're already templated into these communities, you may not have a choice. Again, you're conditioned by your community, by your family, by society, and that helps inform kind of how you show up. So what it means is as adults and parent figures, we really have to do the time to do our diligence and homework to get educated so that we're empowering our children to make decisions that are, that are best for them. Again, that, that may be a bit of an advanced kind of part of your argument, but it, it definitely struck something with me when Scott said that. No, fair enough. Okay, like yeah, we're just a free-flowing show. Uh, go ahead, go ahead um, Latrice. Um, I just want to add, uh, and that reminded me of um, Ta-Nehisi's Coates, Ta-Nehisi Coates' article, My President Was Black when he talks about um, how President Obama was even, you know, how what he felt that allowed President Obama to even envision the possibility of being president and why he was so comfortable around all races just because he grew up with his mom and her parents. And so he, he was comfortable because he was around white people who treated him well and he wasn't exposed to the, the hatred that some others might um, Experience so it was those earlier positive interactions that helped to form and shape who he was. So that's what um, I thought about when um, Scott made his comment. Oh, that's, that's a beautiful thought. All right, we're going to do. Let me share one more, and this is to kind of answer your question that you asked on your initial statement, Latrice. Is the in a sense the why you know in a sense that it didn't come into play until as late as the 19th century, and again it did become formal law in some states. Um, not throughout the country, and again, I was surprised to learn it, it was that late as well. So we're gonna, you know, let me share one more thought, and then we'll definitely move this conversation forward. But I definitely want to answer that question. I think this statement will do so. Um, and, and there's another unique quote that I want to share that kind of surprised me again in studying this history, and I want to share with the audience. So it says, although racial segregation was adopted legally by southern states of the former Confederacy in the late 19th century legislators resisted defining race by law as part of preventing interracial marriages. In 1895, this is surprising right here, in 1895 in South Carolina during discussion, George D. Tillman said this. He says, it is a scientific fact that there is not one full-blooded Caucasian on the floor of this convention. Every member has in him a certain mixture of colored blood, it would be a cruel injustice and the source of endless litigation, of scandal, horror, feud, and bloodshed to undertake to annul or forbid marriage for a remote, perhaps obsolete trace of Negro blood. The doors would be open to scandal, malice, and greed. So, you know, a quick synopsis of that quote is kind of explaining why it was, in a sense, pushed off. And then what ended up happening was the one-drop rule was not, it says not adopted into law until the 20th century, first in Tennessee in 1910, and in Virginia under the Racial Integrity Act of 1924. So that answers your curiosity, Latrice, um, as to why, because you got this, you know, George Tillman, I guess uh, whatever convention they were having, saying, hey, you know, if we go to forbid this, we're going to forbid marriage for everybody because at this point, even by 1895, ain't none of us pure-blooded white is how I looked at that uh, conversation. But, Latrice, I'll let you again. That was your curiosity, so I'm going to let you respond to hearing that um, first. 
um, it makes sense to me now um, why it happened then. So, um, you know, I was digging around Google when you, you <laughs> so I was already um, looking it up. But, yeah, it, it definitely makes sense to me now. Um, uh, now I'm just so, you, you know, I'm looking to see how we transition from that to the loving um, ruling. So, yeah, absolutely. All right, quick thoughts from both of y'all, and we'll definitely begin to advance this conversation and bring it to current to today. I actually got a caller that wants to get in as well, but I'll give both quick responses from Ali and Scott, and then we'll go to the caller. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that George Tillman piece I thought was really powerful. Just looked him up real quick. You know, he's a little bit of a progressive for his time. Had a couple of uh, successful bids in that South Carolina um, State Senate, and then and then not necessarily federal, but it, it, it shows me that you have, you know, leaders from 50 years ago, 100 years ago, who are still trying to think a little bit beyond just what's on the surface of things, just what, you know, these, these antiquated rulings and these antiquated sort of laws are, and we, we, we have tended to believe that a law is a law, so therefore it's good, it's righteous, we have to follow it. Well, laws can be amended, laws can be changed, and sometimes they need to, and there's some, and there's some laws on the books in some southern states that uh, that probably still need to be relooked, and they've been on the legislation for quite some time. So it just shows me that we we had we had some potential a long time ago, 120 years ago, and there's still a lot of ways to go. Yeah, fair enough. Um, Scott, any thoughts on just hearing again the the why it didn't happen until the 20th century? Any thoughts on that? Um, did I lose Scott? He was, he was Scott is on the road, so he may have gotten dropped off here. Let me check real quick. Okay, he did drop off. Let me get it back on. All right, Scott, we hey, got you live again. Scott. Go ahead, King. All right, good deal. Yeah, I'm driving through these swamps over down here in Florida. Yeah, not so. a problem, brother. Um, yeah, we're we going we gonna to get through <laughs> it, man. we definitely going to get through it. Not a problem. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it, yeah, you have people that uh, can actually think through things. Uh, the problem is you, you, you had a lot of uh, the mass of folks. Again, you, have, you have quantities of folks. They don't really want to think through it, and they and, and they just see what's in front of them, and uh, you know that's what they're going to base these laws on. And and sometimes it's it's easier one way than it is to uh, to change the law or to be a progressive thinker. And I think that's one of the problems you were running into, uh, uh, you know, in the past and and still still to a certain point today. Uh, absolutely. All right, I got Brother Pianchi out there on the line that's wanting to get his three cents in. Let me get him on. For all those that are on the phone line, if you want to get in on this morning's discussion, please press 1. For those online, the number to get in is 646-787-1691. You will need to press 1 to give us your three cents on this morning's discussion. Again, that number is 646-787-1691. Let's get Brother Pianchi's thoughts this morning. Brother Pianchi out of St. Louis, thanks for being with us. Yeah. King, what's your three cents on this morning's discussion question? Well, I'm going to give you nine cents. Oh, uh, wow. Okay, this go. Now they, first, they don't make first, it too long now. I'm messing with you. Go ahead, King. Well, you know, well, you might have to have a second uh, topic because it's, you, you're only hitting on a part of it. You're not hitting on the entire. See, there's always a cause and effect, but look at this. Well, we ain't even did the show yet now, Brother Pianchi. I got I to gotta jump in there now. We we just did a little history. I know, but listen to going. what I got. So you got to gotta give me two hours now. Go ahead, though, King. Go ahead. Yeah, Go ahead. this whole thing, yeah, we're talking about this. Actually, technically, Barack Obama and people of his uh, uh, position was designated as mulatto. But look, this idea developed long before this part of the world 
was settled. Matter of fact, this, it, 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 you find this whole idea even in the Bible, and it existed before there was Bibles. Uh, in the Bible, it says, do not give your daughters to their sons. Do not give your sons to their da- daughters. And going back beyond that, it had the same type of ethnocentricity when there was no whites in the land. Think about this. So when you come up into the 19th century in Tennessee and Virginia, these people was probably reading the Bible because you're talking about Virginia, which is a Bible state, North Carolina, Bible state, South Carolina. The settlers that came here, came here, they used the Bible as their pretext for being able to inherit this land, what you call now America. So that's how these things develop. Also, you have to look at this clearly, the difference between black, African-American. Uh, the case. You know, Tiger Woods brought a lot of this in, too, when he claimed himself to be a, what, Cala-Asian or something of that nature. Then you yeah, start yeah, seeing... Being African-American. Yeah, he said that as well. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, then you see legislation come up in different states. I remember a legislator in, in uh, Kansas City talked about and introduced what was called the Tiger Woods Bill and wanted to include people of mix as a designation and biracial as a designation. So it does exist. You know, I could go on with this and tell you, and you know what? It exists today in African societies. They are ethnocentric also, even to this point. You cannot become in a certain hierarchy if you don't come from that particular uh, tribe or family. So, uh, Hey, I mean, what Teresa Hines Carey? Teresa Hines Carey is what? She's African American. I'm not. She was born in Boston. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I'm not even. That's John Carey, Senator John Carey's Senator John Carey's oh, okay. wife. She's the heritage of the Hines. What we know as Hines ketchup of uh, fortune. Oh, wow! Thank you for that information, man. We are up against the break. <laughs> Thank you for your nine cents, as you call it, this morning. I uh, appreciate the king, and, you know, if you want to get back in, you know how to do it. Get back on the one. Uh, you're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We'll be right back. All I ask is that you think. If, if you're in the background, mute, mute yourself, and we'll bring you back on after the break. What do you think? Yeah, 
Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Latrice Ross. You just heard a cut from Square Business Entertainment, Taylor Pace. I really want you. They are sponsors of our show. We'd like to share some of their excellent real R&B music. Uh, I, I say real because a lot of this stuff is out uh, in, in the daytime is always focused on sex, and they'll bring it back that real R&B. So I appreciate having them as sponsors attempt to uh, share some of their latest music uh, with the audience. But this morning's discussion question, interracial children, are they black or white? Let's go ahead and get this conversation current, as we have on special guest Ali Palmer, as well as Scott Waters. Scott, we're going to start with you uh, in reference. All right. Again, we, again we, went through, yeah, we went with some history. And so the question just simply says, are they black or white? Are you and I being friends? Uh, going to school together, I know when I met you at the academy, uh, you've given your background for people that are just now tuning in. Share your background again, um, you know, when I when I give you, the, in a sense, the mic. But I know when we met, you definitely identified as black, and you definitely hung out with us, the fellas, the crew. And so that's how I met you. That's how I knew. Uh, and to even give more context to this conversation, you don't look black. So you were always having to kind of answer that question, but you definitely acted and walked apart, and we definitely accepted you. Uh, but but all of us, because you don't look black, always, you know, started out saying, are you? You showed, you know, real quick that you were. That's how you were raised. That's how you were brought up. So we we definitely accepted you as one of our own brothers, but the initial thought when you said it was like, huh? Because you don't look the part. So I want to definitely give that context, and you open up, you know, from that space. But, again, give your ethnic background for people that may just not be tuning in as well, and then you can go ahead and get into that, um, your your own experience, if you will, King. Hi, I'll, uh, again, uh, dad, my dad was uh, black, Native American, my mom, uh, Mexican, and uh, with a Spanish background. Um, dad was adopted by black parents, so my grandparents, the only grandparents that I've ever known, uh, were black. Uh, my dad grew up during the time of uh, segregation. Uh, you know, he was born in, in 1940. Uh, he went through that. Uh, grew up in a black school, uh, segregated black school, one room, wood fireplace. I mean, all that, all that stuff that you hear about and, and, and can't quite believe. Um, got drafted to Vietnam, came back. You know, you know, but still, uh, you know, and, and even though he looked very uh, fair-skinned, you know, he had, at least he had, you know, a nice red afro and, uh, you know, was known. His, his his parents were known, uh, you know, and, of course, they were black. My grandfather was a farmer. Um, and, and so that's, that's what I knew. So growing up, even though my mother was of Hispanic background, um, I really didn't know her family. Her family was down in the uh, uh, Chihuahua area of Mexico, uh, some had crossed the border up into Texas, um, legally, mind you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, but yeah, I, I didn't, I did I didn't really know any, any of my cousins, my aunts, my uncles. Uh, I didn't know them. So what I grew up with, I was, I grew up in a black church, uh, grew up in a school that was black and white. And as you already mentioned, I look white. I mean, I, you know, even with the background that I have, you would expect me to have a very, uh, uh, brown skin, I don't. And, and that's why I bring up the Spanish background, 
because uh, if you know anything about the uh, Spanish side of the Hispanic end, you have a lot of people that really look white, okay? And so I am right. very fair, even though I don't burn very easy. But uh, so that's that's what I grew up with. My hair is straight. Um, unless it grows pretty long, I, you know, I don't even get the waves. It's just straight brown hair. Um, so that's what I grew up with. Uh, now, as a kid, I, I never paid attention to it much. Um, you know, the the you know, I had uh, white friends. I had black friends. The school I was in was basically white, fifty percent mixed. So it was uh, it was pretty inter- intermingled. The classes were intermingled. I, you know, I didn't really have any issues there. I was accepted on both ends, and so it worked out. Did I get funny looks at times? I did, but I didn't pay any attention to them. Um, now, as I get to high school, that's when I start recognizing it a little bit more. I start understanding that the look is because of what I just said. I just said, oh, well, you know, my parents are this or my grandparents are that. Or, you know, now that uh, in the town that we got to once we moved out of the uh, city area and moved out to the stick with the smaller town, um, a smaller high school. Uh, so the last name, my last name, Waters, was known. And so once they connected the dots and understood that, oh, wait a minute, that's uh, your grandparents are Elwood and Ruby. Okay. you know. And then I started understanding that mm-hmm. the pause was because people didn't understand. Now, on the other end of it, however, uh, you know, I would go to a group of black people and walk up to them, and I'd get the same funny look. And, you know, when I was younger, I, I paid no attention to it, you know, and eventually the looks would go away and everybody was fine. Um, as I got older, I began to understand that, you know, I was kind of looked at as, hey, wait a minute, you don't belong over here. You, you don't belong at this lunch table. What are you doing here? You know, and and I, the beauty about it is that I got to see it from both ends. So I understood that, you know what, mm-hmm. people are people. Okay, people are going to look at you first. They're going to draw conclusions, and then as time goes by, their conclusions hopefully will adjust. Uh, if they don't adjust, then it's not really worth my time. And you know, and that's kind of the uh, kind of the background that I had, kind of the way I chose to live my life. But a lot of that came from my dad. Okay, uh, in the household that I grew up in, you know, we went through a time where we didn't have a whole lot. You know, we were on food stamps. We got government cheese. Uh, you know, we, 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 we did a lot of the things that are quote-unquote, uh, you know, with the black community. You know, we, we weren't in good areas. You know, I didn't realize that growing up because, you know what, right. I had enough. I, I did all right, um, but... That's what it was. Looking back on it, I now know. Um, but my dad just wasn't having it. You know, he was like, look, you're, you're going to do what I tell you to do. When I tell you to do it, you're going to you're going to learn the things you're supposed to learn. You're going to treat people with respect, starting with me. And that's kind of the end of it. And so as that, you know, as that, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? As that characteristic started to grow within myself, I started being able to handle you know, some of the racism that I was feeling, whether it be from uh, white people or whether it be from black people or whether it be from brown people. Because even though I have I have Mexican and Spanish, even though I have Mexican and Spanish in my background, I don't speak a lick of, of Spanish, you know. 
Right. And so then I'd get to look, wait a minute, you know, you're Mexican, but you don't even speak Spanish? You know, what the hell? And so you, you, you feel it from everywhere. And so the one place I did feel it, and, you know, maybe this kind of goes to uh, quality of people that go to these service academies, and, you know, there's my little plug for the service academy. I've never felt that from you guys at Preston. You know, I didn't feel that from, from you, Smith, or Mike, or Dave, or, you know, any of the guys that were there, you know. And so that in itself told me that the route that I was on, what my father taught me, where I grew up, was not something to be ashamed of or hidden. It was something to be proud of. Now, is that always the case with, uh, you know, a little black boy growing up in the ghetto or growing up in a in, in, in a poverty status or whatever the case is? No, it's probably not. But for me, it was fine. And you guys treated me. Once the question was done, you know, once you guys asked me, wait a minute, how does that work? You know, or maybe it was Exactly. We, are, we definitely had to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you had to ask, but then it was like, all right, now I, I understand, I get it, you know. And you know, after parents' weekend, y'all saw Dad standing there with his red afro, and you're like, okay, shit, I, I guess he wasn't lying to me, you know. Exactly. So, yeah, that is how it goes too. That's exactly how it goes. That's exactly how it goes. Right. And and I'm and I and I, I'm sorry to cut you off, brother, but um, oh, you're good. Literally, now that literally I I'm loving allowing Scott to tell his entire story because again he has. As you, as we all hear, a multi-ethnic background, and he's given us that insight because that's not my experience. We're doing that show to hear that experience, and so you know, opening up and giving him more time just makes sense to me. Um, Ali, before we go to the next break, um, you again being the father of a biracial child, and you're hearing Scott's stories. What are your concerns? Or I mean, it's, I would guess, based on what Scott just had to say, um, you would almost hope that that's your child's experience, but I'm pretty sure you do have, you know, some of the natural fears that I would think most parents of biracial children may have. But, again, I kind of want to hear it from that standpoint, if you will, um, King, before we go to the next break. Happy to. Happy to, Montoya. I really appreciate the honesty and the detail of Scott's story, and I relate to a lot of it growing up, you know, biracial and then heading off to the academy as well. And luckily for me, I went to the actual academy as opposed to the, the secondary Air Force Academy. But that's also helped, <laughs> Shots uh, fired. Shots fired. We'll get you off. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get you back after the show. But go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, let me answer that question. I have – so many wonderful visceral reactions to Scott's story, but I'm going to specifically answer your question in a little bit of, in a little bit of honesty that, that I know that you can appreciate, you know, kind of on your show. Actually, the experience that you and Scott had at the Academy scares me for my son because it sounds like that you accepted him into the group despite his phenotypical outward appearance because you kind of got the impression after a little while that he really was black. You saw his dad, you saw he could be down with the brothers, et cetera, et cetera. To me, that should not be the bar. That should not be the standard of acceptance. If my son wants to intermix with one half of his racial community, he is half black, half white, but he looks very fair skinned, straight hair, uh, cream colored skin. He looks much more like his mother than he does me. And so I worry that when he does come of the age where he starts to see the separation mm-hmm. and the division of colors, which will naturally happen at some point because of the world we live in, and particularly the geography that I'm in, in the South, living in Georgia, I want him to not have to pass some type of rigorous test or some type of bar in order to be accepted by the brothers. I, I worry 
that if we don't arm him, and it sounds like Scott got armed with this early on, which I'm, I'm happy to hear, but if we don't arm him with the type of comfort and confidence in himself that he is okay to be who he is and feel the way he does and grow up with his values of, of respect and, and integrity and love and fair treatment, then he may be intimidated and want to start to do things to sort of fit into one group or another. And that worries me a little bit about our society. Now, those are strong thoughts. Um, you've got about a about 40 seconds before break. I definitely want to hear your thoughts to both of them. We've got some callers as well. So let's go, go ahead and go to the break real quick. And when we come back, uh, I want to hear – um, what you know, your take on what Scott and Ali had to say. Uh, we'll be right back for the callers. We'll get to y'all going into the next segment, coming out of the next segment. And listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think. We'll be right back. My name is Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. I am the owner and facilitator of the Mental Dialogue Community Support Group focused on practical solutions and the collective thinking of the black community. We do that one of two ways every third Friday, 7 p.m. at Urban Grind, or Saturday mornings, the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Contact us at mentaldialogue.com or on Facebook at Mental Dialogue. All I ask is that you think. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Latrice Ross, Special guest, Ali Palmer, Scott Waters, this morning's discussion question. Interracial children, black or white, absolutely, Ali, appreciate the honesty. That's what we do here. Um, candid dialogue. Latrice, any thoughts about what either of them had to say? I, I, I really love to hear, you know, Ali's honesty, if I can say that. But go ahead, Quinn. I think it's interesting. It actually made me think back to, to my childhood, and, and I don't, I'm not biracial. However, my paternal grandmother is Iroquois Indian, and my paternal grandfather is biracial, black and white. Um, my maternal grandmother, grandfather is biracial, and my maternal grandmother is black. So when I look in the mirror, I see black. Um, but it made me think when I was back in school, because I had a pointy nose and small lips, I didn't fit in because my school was majority black. So I was called Pinocchio, and I was made fun of because I didn't have the typical black physique, and my lips were thin. And as a matter of fact, that still bothers me today. Um, I actually inquired about getting collagen injected into my lips. Um, wow. So it, it does make me wonder, and it is interesting how you guys accepted him based on his actions and not his appearance. And I wonder how often that would happen in our current society um, with things being so um, explosive around race relations right now. Um, I wonder no, if you would are, have that same experience um, in the academy today with what we have going on in our society. Yeah, I, I, I would guesstimate the academies will pull it off just because of the concept that, you know, we're always reminded, uh, you know, in, in, in taking the, the, the oath, in a sense, um, from day one, even for you, you know, just from going to the academy, even before actually being in the military, you know, we're constantly reminded that you know we may have to die for one another. So, um, you know, the military has always done okay. Um, we definitely know the, the history, you know, or whatever, but the military is kind of first, you know, to lead the way when it comes to that. So I would guesstimate, um, you okay. know, the academy would do okay with it, even though they've had some issues even since we've left. 
um, you know, in, in in regards to racial issues and things like that. But those things, have, you know, went, that ebb and flow constantly happens. So maybe not as easy as we accepted, Scott, but I would guess today, I always like to believe that the next generation does better with that, but I do understand your fears. Let's go to the um, callers that we have on the line as well. Area code six seven eight last three nine two seven. Give us your name, where you're calling from, and your three cents on this morning's discussion question. Hey man, it's brother Unc. What's going on, bro? What's up, pal? Hey, how you doing, King? What you got for us this morning? Oh, man, so we already know that this conversation is really a conversation for our genetics. So my first thing I would just like to ask um, brothers and sisters uh, that's on the panel yourself have have any of y'all taken a DNA test? Start I have not, as of yet. Uh, okay, okay. How about yeah, you? Yeah, 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 all of y'all answer that question. I have not, though. No. Ali, no. here, not yet. No, I, I have okay. I, I have not, though. No. Okay. I have not so yet. Everybody, oh, okay, that's good. So this is what I'm going to say. It's not an arrogant statement. The reality of the situation is none of y'all really know who y'all are biologically. So basically what y'all are using as a parameter is what we call racism, white supremacy. Because it was racism, white supremacy that made those categories up. Uh, we now understand that really uh, there's no such thing as race. Race is really a social construct uh, created by scientific racism. Um, so, so we understand that. And it was through the works of Charles Darwin that actually changed that whole paradigm. And so I suggest everybody get themselves a DNA test, and then you can kind of work back from there. And so really what we, the conversation is, you know, culture and, and being culturally accepted, you know what I'm saying? And so uh, I think the brother that said he was uh, kind of mixed with Spanish and some Mexican and some Native, black Native American. Um, he accepted uh, what we would quote unquote call African-American culture. And so that's why he kind of fit into that group. And so I think the whole conversation is really dope, but, but it's a conversation for genetics. So I would really like to see, uh, everybody that's on this panel, go get that DNA test, and maybe a couple months down the line, you know what I'm saying, revisit the conversation. I think that would be super dope. And you know how you do it on Mental Dialogue, uh, uh, brother. Um, I think that would be hey, uh, kind of serious. You, you know what I'm saying? Hey, that's really, a, yeah, that's a great, great, great suggestion. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, we, we no, that's a great suggestion. Mm-hmm. So, like, we had Rick Kittles uh, on our show, on the Raw Squad show. And I think it's 2019, and we need to have serious uh, conversations and serious dialogues. And that's why I deal with you, uh, Montoya, because of that. So, so I just want to up the game for the listening audience. Go get your DNA test. You can figure it out. And, 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 and it's, it's crazy because guess what? If you want to say black is, is a certain amount of this and a certain amount of that, right, we can honestly say that Barack Obama was not what you would call, quote, unquote, the first black president. We haven't had a we we've had a president that has some African descent, right? But we have we haven't had what you would call someone that maybe genome shows that they may be ninety eight percent or eighty five percent of what you would call sub Saharan African. We ain't had that president yet. You feel me? So the whole conversation has to be based around genetics. Uh, if you get the magazine National Geographic, they actually showed uh, two twins. One came out looking what you would consider to be white, and one came out what you would consider to be black. Okay, and and when you do, and, and the question is, well, how could that be coming from the same parents? Well, it's the genome. You know, the genes are actually mixed up. 
And so you can actually have a brother and sister, and they test your genomes, and the genes are different. I mean, that's just the way it goes. You know what I'm saying? So I think there's an actual study where they talk about people's story. And I'm listening to y'all give y'all a story, right? The story is basically this. Most people that tell their family history, or my mother was Cherokee, and this, that, this, blase, blase, at the end of the day, we find that most of them, 99% of the time, are absolutely wrong. And that's a real dope study. So get that magazine, National Geographic, with those two twins on it. And as you read the article, you see they actually had done a study when, when everybody get a chance to tell their story like y'all doing and how they was accepted, right? And then they all get a DNA test and they come back shot. Yep, I'm following you, so King. You now nah, I'm following you, King. Now nah, I'm following you. Let me, let me, I got some other callers, King. I wanted to, you, you were giving a lot of brilliant thoughts. We love your three cents. You know we opening up the phone lines. But I think you've uh, made a great case uh, for what this discussion, you know, as you say, could elevate to. You know, we mm-hmm. uh, we definitely are doing it in from the cultural standpoint. And I had a cut I wanted to play on the last cut that basically was with a segue right into what you said. And I wasn't able to play it. It was from Neil deGrasse saying, you know, that race is a social construct. I may still try to play right. it later in the show. I just couldn't get it on. So it was a little bit of a perfect segue into you saying this. But let me get to the next caller. You definitely brought something right, to the bro. table. I, I, I am personally looking to get have my DNA test. Um, probably for, partly for the reasons that you talked about um, as well. That's you know, and and reaching back to my you know, in a sense, my West African heritage, assuming that that's what I would mm-hmm. be um, to the extent that mm-hmm. I want to find out my tribe. So I definitely have that on the on the table for myself to do. But let's get to the next caller. Thank you for your three cents this morning, King. I'm a stick. I will keep you on. So I heard you. Sorry, cut you off a little bit. Uh, area code eight one seven last three six nine one. You're live on the air. Give us your name, where you're calling from, and your three cents on this morning's discussion. Hey, man, this is Mickey Belton. What's up? What's up? Scott, what's up, brother? So I want to tell What's that, brother? I just said what's up. That's all. No, it's all good. Hey, I got to tell a story about Scott, right? So we first got to the – to the prep school, I think Ali made the comment about and called us a JV Academy, whatever. Brother, you missed out on a, on a heck of an experience. Um, out. And so, <laughs> so I, the first day we get off the bus, right, I, I'm like many of us, came to play football, didn't know it was really that serious about the military. I see this dude get off the bus with what I think are shades, right? And this is when the, the technology for glasses, I guess, were progressing. So, Scott had the coolest glasses on earth. They were regular glasses in in in, in dim light. But he, when he went in the sun, they got dark. Right. And I'm like, who is this? I thought he was a Mexican dude. He might have been mixed, but he was mad. I'm like, who is this cool this cool dude getting off the buses? Why I ain't wear my shades? I ain't know you can wear shades out here, right? So I get I get to talk I get to talk to him. And when you the first moment you meet Scott, he is the, he is cooler than the other side of the pillow, like laid back, chill, the whole nine. And cool I have water. a very outgoing, cool gregarious personality. And uh, and this cat's just handling me, dealing with talking to me, whatever. And I asked him what's his ethnic background at some point, and uh, he tells me what he told y'all. But it wasn't – Scott, please tell me you remember this. Scott had a family photo in his room with about 12 family members in it. And I distinctly look at it, and, and so it wasn't validation. And I'm going to segue this into what Ali was talking about as well. But I saw this picture, and the way my mind remembers it, even if it's not correct, his family probably didn't deliberately do that. I think they lined up by the shade of their skin. So you sweep from left to right. You see really light people. And then you see his daddy on the end with an afro or something. And I really think he had his fist up in the air. But I don't, I don't know. I can't remember that. But, so, 
Hey, that's true. So, hey, in 2019, that's the truth, Nikki. That's he yeah, definitely yeah. had his kiss in the air. I'm joking. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, so my my, my thing is saying this. It wasn't, and I, I want to tie this to what Ali said that he was fearful for himself, for his son going to the academy. Um, and it, he hoped that that wasn't the standard of acceptance. And I'm not watering down what he said. I take it as as a, as a valid statement and concern. My thing is this. It wasn't the standard of acceptance. It is a process that I think from what Scott has described, and I have I have biracial children, so I lived through this. I'm not speaking from a, a perspective of ignorance or inexperience or naivety. It is a, that's part of the process. And when you're, you're biracial, mixed, mulatto, whatever moniker you want to use, that's what people go through. And, it is, and as honest as Scott is about his experience, that's the honest uh, process, that mental process that we went through. But I, but I want to end with this point, on this, on this particular point. Scott had been a, a blue-eyed, blonde-haired white guy and completely with no mix at all. The way he carries himself and the way he interacts, and I want this to be clear to all uh, that, that are listening, it's not just an, an academy phenomenon. People befriend who they're comfortable with, who they relate with, and with, with whom they, they have common ground. And so by saying that, I would imagine that most of us on this phone have some white friends because they're cool and maybe you work with them, but you relate to them in some kind of way. And I don't want to make, I don't want it to be misconstrued that we wouldn't have accepted Scott if he was a blue eyed, blonde haired yeah. white guy that just was cool and down to earth. That's how we roll. And I, I think there's a growing population of people that are embracing that despite all the problems that we have in the world. And then um, hey, I think the last thing I'm I sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, go ahead get it out. So I just want to make an, I, the, the last brother that was on, um, I don't, I don't understand what the point of the DNA test would be in, as it pertains to this discussion. I see that being a different show. We all do DNA tests and we discuss our results. But I don't know if it adds – maybe I took it incorrectly in that it somehow validates or invalidates anything because if any of these people came back to be 5%, you know, African, if I relate with you, I relate let me give you. A, let me give you a quick take on it because we've got we we to get to the top of the hour. Let me give you a quick take. And, then, I mean, and like I said, maybe – you know, and, not, and that brother's still on, so I may even get him back on if I get a chance. I got a lot of callers, so I, I can't promise that. Uh, but the right. quick take is these, uh, from the, and this is how I'm understanding it. The quick take is when he was talking about the idea of us telling our story. So if we're telling our story based on what we think we know or what we've heard, or grandma was okay. Cherokee Indian. So he's just talking about, you know, your DNA test actually, you know, gives you a ground for who you really are, whereas your story could be entirely incorrect. And so he was just saying, have this conversation on a, on from a genetic scientific level, which would be more factual if if we're going to still even use these constructs. Um, and because what he did say correctly yeah. is, you know, that race is a social construct that we unfortunately are living out, and this is why we're having this discussion on a cultural level. Um, but there's no fact to it. And he just said, if you want to know who you are and learn that about yourself and tell your true story, go get the DNA test. That's how I understood um, what what Brother Ark had to say. Uh, let me see where we're right, at. Two quick, two two quick things, and I I would call Barack Obama. Well, actually, I got I got at the top of the hour, King. So I'm gonna have to. Yeah, right, I'm cool. at the top of the hour, so I'm I'll get, but I can't get you back in. So just you know, come off the one right, cool. and come back on, and I'll get you back on later. All right, you're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. We'll be right back. Square Business Entertainment brings you their latest hit, "I Really Want You" by Taylor Pace. Take a listen. I really want, I really want you, but I can't have you, 
Um, there's a lot of people, and again, we're taking this in a different direction. There's a lot of people when we start having this conversation um, that we're having today who suggest that there's always concern with people with multi-racial backgrounds. As we heard Scott give his, in a sense, his beautiful history and how, as he said, we as friends didn't put him through that. But I think Ali fairly brought to the table his concerns about what his son, you know, may experience. But I wanted to put up, this, in a sense, this beacon of the civil rights movement, who I always tell people who who are concerned about, you know, in a sense, can we trust, in a sense, biracial people when it comes to black liberation? And that's kind of where we're going. And, and, and who ask that question, what I always say to them is hardly any of us could ever walk in a hair of belly fonte shoes and we're sitting up here trying to determine whether somebody is with us based on our own social constructs right now. But you can't hold walking that man's shoes, but you're trying to determine whether somebody is down or not. And just based on how you think. I hope what I'm saying is making sense, but I definitely want to go in that direction. I'll let um, Latrice, we haven't heard from you for, for a moment. And, and again, tell me if I'm making sense and where I'm taking this and why I paid the cut, played the cut. And, and again, just trying to apply it to this morning's conversation. Go ahead, Queen. Okay, so you're asking if we can trust biracial people to really be an ally or be a part of the equitable, the equality movement, black equality movement. Is that what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, something that I hear come up all the time, and I, you know, again for the type of show we are. I want to answer all the hard questions. I definitely hear that come up from time to time. I had someone post this week that we could not, and they should never be leaders based on, again, this idea. And so I wanted to hear all of y'all thoughts on people who think that way. Okay. So because I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant, um, my focus being on inclusion. And so I – absolutely believe that multi-ethnic people can be allies to the black cause. As a, as a matter of fact, the, um, Kellogg did a, a research report and says that for, for the most part, black and white biracial people are considered black by white people and black by black people, but for different reasons. White people consider them to be black because for social inequity reasons, oh, they're black so that, you know, we're going to, you know, we have to hire you Well, you're considered black, so no, we're not going to pay you as much, et cetera. Black people that, that view them as being black view it from an equitable equity standpoint. So I absolutely believe that not only can multi-ethnic people be allies, but I have white friends who are more pro-black than I am. So we absolutely can have biracial people that are allies, white people that are allies, Asian people that are allies, I'm not an exclusionist, so I believe that we can have allies of all races. All right, fair enough. Any thoughts, um, Ali, from you um, and just in reference yeah. to this concept and being exposed to it or, you know, what are your thoughts just in general? Have you seen people that, that try to be, you know, exclusionary in this point? Let me say this before you go. Anybody out there who disagrees with us, we welcome the thought here on Mental Dialogue. So if you disagree with what Latrice says or what Ali or Scott has to say, we want those opinions and hear the thoughts out. So we're not trying to tell people how to think. We just want to have the open discussion. Go ahead, Ali. 
Yeah, thank you so much. I, I wholeheartedly support what Latrice was saying, and I think that maybe calling it ignorance is a little strong, but I'm, I'm not sure that it's founded in what's healthy for our country for somebody to say that anybody multiracial or biracial doesn't have the purity or doesn't have the experience to really be an advocate for the movement, you know, whether it's the acceptance movement, the equality movement, the Black Lives Matter movement. I was at a, a, a actually it was an all-academy conference about six years ago, and there was a diversity inclusion you know, seminar going on, and I stood up and said, I've got an opinion about how diversity and inclusion is going to work in any corporate organization. In order for it to work, we have to have the support of the majority. And in the, in the most cases, that's white males. White males have to champion these efforts. They have to put resources and sponsorship and support behind it in order for diversity and inclusion to work. And I knew that was a controversial statement in the room. And sure enough, several people came up to me telling me why they disagree and the history of our country and how Jim Crow, you know, in that era kind of prevents, you know, white people from truly understanding our plight, et cetera. And those may be valid points, but I think we're going to continue to see division and derision from a lot of different groups, both, you know, social groups, political groups, uh, movement groups, if we keep ourselves in a fixed mindset, right? A fixed mindset of, oh, he's white. So he can't possibly understand what I'm going through or what that means. Well, you know, maybe he doesn't have those genetics or that biology, but that is not the only thing that makes up our experience. I'm a, I'm a construct of my biology plus my rearing and my environment, and all of that makes up who I am. And to marginalize any point of that from anybody reduces some efficacy and some effectiveness of what we're trying to do, right, which is raise awareness, raise education, so that I don't have that fear or my fear is minimized of my biracial son who has to pretend that he's one thing in order to fit into a certain group. Right, Montoya, are you feeling me on it? So I, I want to ch- actually I want to challenge you, um, and again, this is what we do um, on the show. And so for those who say, and I, and I respect this this aspect, so there, there are plenty who say, well, even pushing for this type of diversity, pushing for this level of inclusion, they'll, they'll say, where's the true benefit? And so their concept then is we must, in a sense, become dependent on ourselves. We must focus on what we can do. Let's show and prove that we are quite capable of, in a sense, progressing because they'll say in current society, in a sense, if you look at all the numbers, we still, as African Americans, we're still at the bottom of everything. And so, for people who are of that mindset, those—that's where I typically hear, you know, we have to see, you know, are you committed to our own advancement? And it's really just, in a sense, taking that accountability and that responsibility, and not depending on, as you just suggested, you know, for example, with in the diversity conversation, I think that's a great challenge to that group. Um, but not depending on the majority having to accept because in their mind, or as you've heard people say, they never will understand. And so because they think they mm. never will understand, it, that's what drives people to say, we got to do this for ourselves. So so that's, that's I think that's the challenge I want to present to you yep, and let you answer it and then, Scott, Give me your thoughts on, you know, after Ali responds to that. Go ahead, King. It's certainly a great point, Montoya. I, you know, you bring up a valid issue, but I push back on you a little bit that when we talk about ourselves, you know, what community are we talking about? Are we talking about the black community? Are we talking about the minority community, the colored community? They got a little bit of black in me, so there I'm black. Are we talking about I'm white, but I act black, so I get to mix in with the black races? 
I hear you loud and clear, but I still am a proponent of that division and self-segregating organizations and groups is not ultimately where we want to be. Our world is more and more becoming integrated and mixed. There are more mixed race babies and couples, even in the South, than there ever have been the last 15, 20 years, and that shows something about our society. So I believe that, yes, we still need uh, the majority to be in support and in championship of what we're trying to do. We can't accomplish it on our own. I will say one thing, though. In order to be a good um, advocate of any movement or group, you need to first be comfortable with yourself. So I went through some identity issues when I was in high school thinking I was one thing and trying to mix in with other groups because I was afraid that somebody might judge or, you know, cast dispersion on me because I was black and I was living in a heavily, you know, Latino community in Florida. So I had to, it wasn't until college that I became very comfortable with me just being black. I may have straight hair and have light color skin. I may have dated a white girl or dated a Latina, but guess what? I'm black. I'm okay. I'm comfortable with that. And that's okay. Now I have that self-assurance, that security within myself that I can move forward and be a champion of any group. Right, with academy graduates, rangers, ranger graduates, people who went to Harvard, anything. So it really starts internally and branches out from there. But if it doesn't, that inclusion piece is not just including minorities, right? It's including all walks of life, all ideologies, all thoughts, all mentalities, all experiences. And that may be a, a dream, it may be a vision, but unless we start dreaming it and talking about it and putting resources and energy behind it, we're just never going to get there. So thank you, brother. Scott, uh, we got about a minute and a half before break. Let me let you jump in on those thoughts. All right, I'll be quick on it. Um, I'll, I'll say this. I I, I agree with uh, with what Ali just said. I mean, basically, you, you have to have buy-in of the majority, whatever that majority is. Um, however, I don't think that you necessarily have to have a white person leading it up, okay, um, because I, I think we have enough qualified black men and women out there that can lead and do these things, but you have to have the buy-in. Um, and, and I would just caution that if you're going to say this person or that person can't do it because he's white, because he's 50-50 or whatever the case is, because he's Hispanic, then all you're doing is putting gas on the fire, on this racism fire, okay? And, and like I stated earlier, I felt racism from both sides, so it's not like it's all on the white side. And and if you believe that, then then you really need to kind of look around sometimes and and maybe look at yourself a little bit. But uh, it, it has to be inclusive. Everybody has to have you know, kind of be on the same page about it. And I you know I think society now we are getting to that point where the majority is on the right page. So but you can't start segregating again and go backwards just because you think in order to accomplish something, it needs to be uh, completely black or, or it's not going to work. Hey, strong thoughts. Let's go to the break and we come back. Patricia will get your thoughts and uh, we'll open up. I have a little slight challenge to you, um, Scott, when you say you see it on both sides because I'm thinking about uh, I've got a lot of my listeners and who I deal with and what I think their thoughts would be, so I'll give you a, a little challenge coming on the back end of the break. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, but all I ask is that you think. We'll be right back. Hey, where did you get that hat and T-shirt? I like that. Oh, I got this at moneymotivation.com. It's fresh, right? Yes, and I love the message on it, too. You are the hustle, huh? That's what the shirt says. I am the hustle. They embody the entrepreneurial spirit, and what I like the most 
It's more than a brand. It's a lifestyle for those who want to put in the work and expect to have the final things in life. I also follow them on Instagram. Check this post out. If you believe money is the root of all evil, you're using it wrong? Or how about this one? Excuses made $0 an hour. I like those. What's their IG? At moneymotivation.co. But do they have any ladies gear? Yes, you're going to love the clothing line they got for the ladies. Matter of fact, pull up their website, moneymotivation.com, and I'm going to get you a few things so we can both look like money. Everywhere I go, go. And everywhere I be, be. I don't even talk, talk. They still go with me. Because I look like money. Smell like money. Talk like money. Even walk like money. The women who are disenfranchised. Young teenage mothers are victims of poverty. Poverty is knocking at our door all day long. It sits in the mirror for us to look in every morning. When we look at what's going on with the schools in this country, we build more prisons than we build schools. We have more young black men and women in the prisons of America than we have in the universities. Poverty is in our face all, all day long. Why is everybody behaving all of a sudden like this is some great Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. This morning's discussion question, interracial children, are they black or white? Special guest co-host, Latrice Ross, Gus, Ali Palmer, as well as Scott Waters. Scott, you um, brought up a strong point, and you just heard another cut from Harry Belafonte. I really just wanted to sandwich our liberation segment um, between Brother Harry, Harry Belafonte. Again, as I said in the beginning of the segment, I always challenge even – um, some of my friends who who are of that mindset, let's do it on our do it on our own. We don't need the majority to help. Uh, you know, in that thing, I always challenge them with, you know, a brother like Harry Belafonte and Scott. You said um, something that I thought was very poignant, and 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 it was similar to something that a Malcolm Malcolm said in his near the end of his life, which is in pushing forward in any type of movement in, in, in response to maybe helping out and assist the black community. His belief was, in a sense, that African Americans need to be up and out front, um, not having, as you said, a white person lead it, um, because that there is a history associated with that. And and, and so and for our own dignity purposes, it should be us leading. Um, so I thought that was a, a strong point. But as you also said, you know, but if that's the only thing that you're determining, um, using as you know, the race is the only thing you're determining that there's there's weakness in that, and you know the idea of biracial. Obviously, I'm presenting Harry Belafonte as a in a sense a, a champion for our community, um, but I even tried to research this before I understand. For example, a uh, Huey P. Newton, um, and again, I wasn't able to find it factually, but I looked, I did see there's possibility that was even he was mixed race, and so um, again, when you think of black liberation to a certain extent, is he not the poster child? in a sense, for the concept of black um, black liberation. And he may have been mixed race. So could you imagine that powerful Black Panther Party movement not coming to, to the forefront simply because somebody says, well, he's not black? Like if that something as simple as that would have stopped that movement. So uh, let me kind of hear your thoughts on that uh, real quick, Scott, and then I'm going to give you a little challenge on something else you said um, in your piece as well. But, again, again, I'm, I, I, I try to find it exact. I try to get to the genealogy, kind of take the scientific approach that Brother Uncle was talking about. And so I don't know for a fact, but I'm just saying something like that could have come in play for, you know, Harry, you know, Huey P. Newton, who, you know, ended up being the leader of that great movement. Any thoughts, King? 
Well, uh, I'll say this. Uh, depending on what it is you're trying to accomplish, um, you know, sometimes that spokesperson, that mouthpiece, the person you have out front is going to matter. Uh, and, that's, and that's why I kind of said that, that you know, there, there are plenty of black men and women out there that can do, I mean, things I can't even think of, you know. And, and you know, I don't claim to be the smartest guy out there, but, I mean, we have some very educated you know, people out there that are, you know, as black as they need to be to, uh, to start a movement, all right? Um, but, you know, the only reason I say that, that you can't just, narrow it down to that is because again what you what that is when you say uh this can only be a black man this can only be a dark black man you know this can only be a a, a a light colored black man this can only you know when you start doing stuff like that again you're throwing gas on this racism fire and, and and if you're trying to get away from that you're trying to build something that is going to withstand the test of time the test of uh, integration and integration, um, then you have to be open to wherever the help is coming from. Experience plays a key. You know, it, it really does. You know, so my background, your background is going to be different than a privileged white person. However, that privileged white person may have a point of view that benefits where, where we want to go. So we have to be willing to look at it, learn from it, and at times follow it in order to get to where we want to go. Does that mean you can't have a black mouthpiece, a black leader, uh, or eventually bring someone in that, that is uh, a little bit better suited to part? No, it doesn't mean that. It just means you haven't found that person yet, but you're willing to take the help from wherever you can get it from. Uh, beautiful. Um, Latrice, I'll give you a, a thought on this, and then we're going to kind of go in a, a, a simpler, different direction. But, again, I just didn't want to do this show without – addressing black liberation considering what you know the purpose of our show we are dedicated to uplifting um, our community in that sense and so it would be unfair to do this conversation in my opinion without that if you're out there on the line and have three cents on any part of this morning's discussion please call 646-787-1691 and press one to let us know you want to speak go ahead queen hold on one second i got her off the air hold on one second Sorry about that. All right, Latrice, I got you back on. Sorry about that. You opened up the wrong line. All right, bear with me. Hello? Producer, yeah, I got it. Producer problems. I'm the producer, so blame it on me. <laughs> All right, let me get her back on. I hit the wrong number. number similar. All right, here we go, Latrice. I got you. Sorry, Queen. You got me now? Yeah, we got you. Okay. Um, So my take on it, and it's probably perhaps because of the work that I do, um, a lot of the change that we want, a lot of the equity issues that come into play, we can't do it ourselves because we're not in the power position to affect the change that's needed. Diversity and inclusion, we get it as a community of black people. It's not for us. It's for white people. It's for those others who don't understand that, at the end of the day, we all bleed red. And so we need those um, sponsors, I think as Scott mentioned, in some instances to open doors. From a policy perspective, we talk about reparations, but it's not just about financial endowments. It's about changing the systemic structures that keep us beneath 
others with regard to the wealth gap. So we need those people in positions of power to bring about the effective change that we need so that we can live an equitable life in our current society. So we can't do it alone unless, you know, a lot of times the exclusionists are saying that, you know, we need to just set up our own communities and, and isolate ourselves. I honestly don't see that as realistic. Um, maybe because I just view things differently, but I don't see it as realistic. And I do believe that we do need those people in power positions to help make the necessary policy changes so that we don't have to deal with a lot of the systemic racism from lending industries, in the medical industry, in the legal and judicial systems. We need those people in power to bring about change so we can't isolate ourselves. We have to be more inclusionary. Um, in our, in our well, fair enough. What I, let me let me say let me say this. Um, I, as I always and often say with a lot of issues, the answer is always in the middle. And mm-hmm. it'll, it'll get obviously just my opinion, but I do where where, where I, this is where I agree with you and Scott. And Scott mentioned it, I think in, in the last before the last break, the concept of or maybe Ali even said it, the idea of the world becoming global. And so when I sit back and watch the world from a, you know, the, the overall global movement and how countries are competing for resources and, uh, you know, these things and, and how people are connecting, obviously due to the Internet, these opportunities to even do shows like this, people are connecting because of the Internet. So the world is becoming more global. And so I will say here's where I agree. Because the world is becoming global, I think there is some short-sightedness in the concept of the, the, the term do it on our own. Uh, because even when I think about, um, in a sense, the work that our ancestors, in a sense, did to progress us to this day, that was done on, in a sense, two fronts. We definitely needed the, you know, in our community specifically, we definitely needed the Black and I'm Proud movement to help us identify with the history that we constantly talk about is not shown to us. So that goes missing even to this day because those things are not, unfortunately, still taught in our public schools. So there is always, even Outside of the biracial issue, as you mentioned earlier, Latrice, personally for yourself, there's always this identity identity chase that we naturally have. And not to go too deep with that, I'm just pointing out that there is a concept of us being independent versus being dependent on a lot of things, like things that are just unnecessary. There are things that we could do our, on our own, but the concept of thinking that we could do everything, as you just mentioned, just based on partly the power structure, again, but more so with the world becoming global, I watch groups bring themselves out, bring themselves up with strategic alliances, something that Martin Luther King talked about heavily near the end of his life mm. when he even, mm. as we heard his, you know, Bear Harry Butterfoot share that quote that he said, you know, his concern was um, the economics. That's where he felt he missed the boat. So near the end of his life, but he even talked about strategic alliances. And what he meant was mm-hmm. not being dependent on those alliances, but understanding how they would absolutely be necessary for the progress of our people. And he and, and when he said mm-hmm. our people, not again, he's at this point, he's he's not even happy about integration at this point in his life, as far as having done it without an economic base. That was his concern. So I'm just kind of giving a lot of context to, to that. And I think, Scott, I hear that. I think that's you. So I'm going to let you go ahead and jump in because um, that seemed like that resonated with you. Go ahead, Ken. That was me, actually. Uh, uh, oh, Ali, okay, cool. Yeah, go ahead. Whoever, yeah, whoever that was, please it, jump in. It, 
it resonated, but again, I want to push us a little bit. We, we, we tended to use this word dependent or dependency as if it's some type of bad or evil thing, and I understand where that comes from, but I would love to challenge us. Why is being dependent on somebody else a bad thing? We depend on people that we trust to do their job on a team so that when they do that, the whole team benefits from whatever the objective or the mission is, and that's military, private, faith-based, school system. That's just life. That's any sports team. So what's wrong with being dependent on somebody else, dependent on the majority, dependent on the system, dependent on my elected representatives to do their job if we trust them and they're properly trained and educated to do so, so that the movement goes forward? I'd love to hear about that. Anybody, Latrice, you want to answer, give a thought to Ali? Because um, I think it's a good question, a good I, challenge. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I think that, you know, as I stated, that in some instances we we have to be dependent on them because they, they in many instances, hold the power structures that we need to change. From a policy perspective, we need, we are dependent upon them to do the right thing. You know, we have to figure out ways to hold people accountable particularly from a political perspective, to do what they promise to do. Um, I think that's one of our shortfalls where we depend on people, we give our vote, and we don't have any accountability measures to, to ensure that those things are done. But I think it's absolutely necessary, whether we want it or not, whether we want to acknowledge or not, that that dependency exists. Um, and I don't think it's going away anytime soon. So, Ali, what I would say to you, um, here's here's what the issue could be, and again, we and I, and I love this challenge. We're just breaking down words, but here's where your issue can come in. Um, when you think about the actual realistic history that we still don't, I think, share enough of in, in this country. Um, realistic from the standpoint of we avoid the ugly history. So, in my opinion, is why some of that ugly history continues. I think we should look at it, you know, on its face. And that would drive us, as, in a sense, as humans, again, if we're going to talk about the human race, to, to not repeat those things. So what I would say to you, Ali, here's the issue with the dependency. When the dependency was set up in order to have control and power over you, and that dependency, even to this day, if that is what's behind the, the, the alliance, per se, is that, I, in a sense, that I maintain control over you, that's why it's looked at as a bad thing in the sense that it's still to, in a sense, actually maintain status quo, sometimes under the appearance that we're making progress, but we've actually seen it play out. Unfortunately, our immigration policy, in my opinion, is a perfect example of how, in a sense, the words that are said are beautiful, the diversity and things like that, they're used, but status quo has remained the case in, in, in some arena. So that's Understood. my challenge, and I'll let you respond to that. If you, yeah, any, any no, understood. You I'm, I'm with you loud and clear. Yeah, so what no, it reminds me of Montoya is that anything, any resource, any tool can be used as a weapon. So historically, yes, that dependency has been bred in certain communities so that I'm controlling you, right? You depend on me. You depend on my finances, my support, my power, and I'm able to wield it to take it away from you, to manipulate you to do what I want to do. And that's seen, unfortunately, in a lot of areas of our current society. So to the extent that we have some influence in modifying that paradigm and allowing dependency to be one of team trust in an organization or a group of people or any movement, then dependency becomes a positive thing. It can be healthy. But if people are still wielding it as a weapon, yeah, you still have that issue. So we just have to be mindful of that. 
No, absolutely. All right, let me go to another quick break. When we come back, I'll open up the phone lines. Anybody else that wants to get in, make sure you are pressing 1 to let us know you want to speak. If you're trying to get in, the number is 646-787-1691. My name is Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. I am the owner and facilitator of the Mental Dialogue Community Support Group, focused on practical solutions and the collective thinking of the black community. We do that one of two ways, every third Friday, 7 p.m. at Urban Grind, or Saturday mornings, the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Contact us at mentaldialogue.com or on Facebook at Mental Dialogue. All I ask is that you think. Because uh, this whole thing about race, I find so odd. Because anytime anyone asks me, you know, mm-hmm. well, what race are you? And I say, uh, last I checked, I'm the human race. Mm-hmm. You got another question? <laughs> and to, to try to slice and dice people, uh, I just don't find that to be productive. Mm. I know how you think of me, because I've been stopped by cops. I know how I'm right. seen in society. But as a living homo sapien in this world, I think of we're the human race, and I, then move on from there. I think that for... <clears throat> the lot of the human race who are enlightened, identifying as a member of the human race is right on point. But I also think that whenever you consider what's going on currently in America, and you think of police relations in the black community, that identifying with your categorized race uh, can also be empowering. So, for example, you're an astrophysicist. If you, instead of saying, or in addition to saying, I'm a member of the human race, also said, I am Afro-Caribbean, I am biracial, I'm Afro-Caribbean and Puerto Rican, that would also help to uplift many Puerto Ricans who live near Arecibo, or many Afro-Caribbeans Arecibo who live near the stars. Arecibo is a major radio telescope exactly. in, in the island and of so Puerto Rico. And so that could also be very empowering, too. Mm-hmm. So there is empowerment in saying, I'm a member of the human race, I'm beyond the construct of race, but at the same time, there's also power in saying, if you want to talk about the construct of race, here's who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, an Afro-Caribbean, Puerto Rican astrophysicist. Mic drop on that one. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates, along with special guest co-host Latrice Ross. This morning's discussion question, interracial children, are they black or white? Our special guests are Ali Palmer and Scott Waters. We've got Brother Unk trying to get back on the line. Um, I'll get, get quick thoughts from all of you uh, on that cut. I thought it was a beautiful cut. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, astrophysicist, astrophysicist, who I'm as kind of as the, the the person who responded to him saying, hey, I'm of the human race, and he's obviously coming from a scientific, um, you know, and there are people who deny the true science, uh, but, uh, who, you know, obviously will come on and 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 agree with uh, Brother Tyson in that sense. Um, but you hear the response from a young man saying, but, hey, based on the current reality of this construct, um, there's some empowerment in identifying. And so I know when I thought of this question, for the most part all of my life, thinking of, quote-unquote, the genetics that, again, I'm going to get Brother Bunk back on. But when I, all of my life, for the most part, 
if there was a black and white who got married for the most part, for the most part, we typically look at the kids as black, and then from time to time, you know, you have people come out who don't. But generally speaking, you, you know, just in the sense of um, black genes, in a sense, being dominant in that sense, quite often you will see that, right? And so generally speaking, a lot of those children identify as black. And so um, the reality is when it comes to biracial, I think that's, in the, when we get technical, is very unfair, but culturally we've done that um, quite often. But this young man says, and you know, Tyson says, hey, there's empowerment if you were to identify and, and wear that with, a, in a sense, a sense of pride. So I'll start with you, Scott. Um, any thoughts on the, on that cut? And I'll tell you from all of you, I'll go to Brother Unk. All right, the Lou Scott again. He's on the road, or I may have. Here I am. Here I right, am. Who's, who's the... oh, okay, cool. Go ahead, King. No problem. I know you. Think... Yeah. Now go ahead, King. What you got for us? If, if, did you catch the cut? Well, I, so I know from... you're driving, so I don't I know did. if you were able to catch the cut or not. Okay, cool. No, I heard because I had this thing on mute. So I quit disturbing you guys. So no, what I'm talking about, or what I'm thinking is, if you're going to use it to uplift someone or uplift the community, I think it's great because what we're talking about is stereotypes. Okay. So the first stereotype jumps into my head is, uh, you know, I'm married right now. I'm married to uh, 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 she, she's multiracial as well. She's Brazilian, Japanese, and Italian. So what jumps out? Japanese. She should be good at math. She's not always good at math, but I tell you what, that stereotype is there, and it helps her work on her math to where it gets better. So my whole thing is if you're using a stereotype to uplift, great. But that the flip side of that coin is there's plenty of stereotypes out there that put people down. So if I look at my background and I say, okay, if I just look at the Mexican and the black, if I look at the bad stereotypes, the bad ones, the ones that I don't identify with but that are still out there, I should be lazy or up on a rooftop banging some uh, uh, ceiling tiles on, okay? But that's not what I chose to do, and that's not what my dad was going to let me do. He wasn't going to let me be lazy. He wasn't going to let me just do manual labor. He wanted to make sure that I was going to be book smart, that I was going to be able to do basically whatever I wanted to do. Uh, to take a step back so it's not as abrasive sounding, um, I'm on my way now to Tampa. My my little girl is going to play, play soccer. Uh, when she goes out there, she wants to know who she's playing, who she's playing. I, I normally tell her, why are you worried about it? Because what you're going to do on the field is what you can do on the field. And if you can do something better, you need to keep working on it and keep getting better at it. It has nothing to do with the opponent. So, you know, if you can use a stereotype to uplift, I'm all for it. But be careful of it because there is a tripwire there. If you use that stereotype to beat down, then there's going to be an issue that comes along with it. That's my strong thoughts. Go ahead, Ali. No, absolutely. Go ahead, Ali. Yeah, I hear him loud and clear. And those stereotypes, they can they can drive a lot of what happens in, in our communities. Um, I, th- I think it's a shame that we allow them still to kind of purvey. I'm always struck when people, you know, meet me for the first time and they see my appearance and I look like I'm black but mixed with something. And then because they hear me talk and I use either educated words or I don't speak stereotypically like a brother from, from you know, the south side of Chicago, they start to assume I'm not really black. I'm kind of putting on a facade or a fake show, and people will go even so far as to say, well, you're not really black, Ali. You know, you're one of us. And it saddens me because my aspiration in life is not to be white. 
I don't aspire to that. I, I am who I am. I talk how I talk. I was educated how I was educated. No, absolutely. Um, yeah, what you made me think of on the trees, I'll let you jump in as well on your thoughts. Ali, we didn't lose you there. We kind of cut off real quick. I want to make sure you're still there. Yeah, I'm still here. I just didn't want the background. Okay, perfect, perfect. No, 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 no problem, no problem. But um, what you just said makes me think of one of my favorite memes that I put on the Mental Dialogue um, Instagram page, and it just it was a meme I found, and I put it up and got a lot of likes or whatever, and it was speaking proper English is being very, very, very black. You know what I mean? And, again, it's just to get rid of those. Oh, areas. amen so to I that. I love that meme. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And basically just pushing for excellence is absolutely black brilliance at all times. And so, you know, whatever you aspire to, to you know, do, be good at it. Um, Latrice, any thoughts to the cut? And then we're going to go to Brother Ark after you. Sure. I think that stereotypes um, are a big deal in our society. One of the exercises that I'll do sometimes when I'm doing diversity and inclusion workshops is I'll have – um, different demographics on the wall on posters: black male, white, white, black man, white, white man, gay man, black woman, Latino man, Latina, Latina woman. Um, all of these on the wall, and I'll have people give them the same color marker and say, "Okay, I want you to write stereotypes that you've heard about each of these demographics." And it's amazing the negative things that that people have heard or that they recall about people. And I have to be careful. You know, I think I, I often laugh at my very first diversity workshop that I did. I left work and I was sitting in my car and someone backed into me. And when I got out, it was an Asian guy. And the first thing that I thought was, damn, Asians can't drive. And I was mortified because I had just left a diversity workshop that I conducted. Mm-hmm. So it's so easy to fall into those stereotypes, but they are harmful. Mm-hmm. They are very harmful. I'm, I'm not, I'm a black woman, but I'm not, I'm not anybody's baby mama. I'm not a gold digger. I have a very good profession. I speak well. Um, a lot of the stereotypes that apply to black women don't apply to me. Um, but that's what's perceived by society when I walk out the door sometimes. Yeah, when I hear y'all speaking of these stereotypes and just bringing it back specifically to this morning's um, topic, topic, and those are obviously respect everywhere y'all are going. And, brother, we're going to come to you after this. I'm just going to ask this question. Like, so for interracial children, in a sense, that are not easily identifiable as, you know, your, is the case for you, Scott, and for anybody else out there listening, uh, in a sense, in a sense, it's almost like the stereotype sometimes can make you have to pick or choose. Um, is, is the things we're even talking about when it comes to stereotypes, is that actually exaggerated um, for someone who's experiencing a biracial experience? Or I think I've even seen this just in looking at people, people talk about their experience, that sometimes they, because they, in a sense, have, um, in a sense, a biracial background, they'll gravitate to the, in a sense, sometimes to the to positive aspects and away from the negative aspects of, of one. You know what I'm They almost kind of pick and choose what they choose is their culture based on some of these stereotypes. So is that something that you experience, Scott, um, you know, in, in, if, if I'm making sense? No, yeah, you are, I, and, and I can speak to it. I mean, I, I kind of made a mention to it when, it when I talked about my wife and her being part Japanese and her math, her right. math skills. Um, it, it was the same thing with me. I mean, one of the things that I saw uh, growing up in, you know, my, my dad's family, um, it, all, all of the black people I grew up with, uh, and knew as family, as church, they worked hard. I mean, man, they worked hard, okay? Uh, my grandfather 
always working. Um, my uncles, you know, who are not my blood uncles, mind you, but they're my uncles. To me, they're my uncles. And they were just working hard. They were always out there in the field. They were always doing what they needed to do to get the job done from, from sunrise to sunset. Uh, same thing on, on the Hispanic side. The Mexicans that I saw, okay, the immigrants that I saw that uh, were out there every summer, you know, my mom would help out with the summer school and stuff like that, and I'd be able to go out there. They were they were such hard workers. I wanted to aspire to be as hard a worker as them. So on both sides of it, I was like, that. you know, I really got to put out because, you know, if, if I start being lazy, one, dad's going to be on me, mom's going to whoop me, Grandma's gonna whoop me. Grandpa's just gonna be mad, you know. So, so yeah, you definitely had a black upbringing. You talking about whoopers now? You, you definitely have. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you. I mean, you know, you know. So yeah. So you I were lying when you first said you was black, because I promise you, you didn't look it. And let me tell you this real quick. I'm kind of being funny here, but yeah, we're about to go to a quick break, and then we'll get brother Uncle. But I'll tell you this well as well, Scott. You know, I actually brought you home one summer of, you know, for the academy. The one, the one summer I could afford to go home. The rest of the time I was staying out yes, there, I couldn't did. afford to go home. But, yeah, but the one summer I did go home, I promise you, even after my mom met you and loved you, she still was like, you sure? Well, that's right. That's right. I, I never well, told yeah. you that, but she was like, ah. she was like, she didn't want to believe it. I thought I was like, Ma, he is. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, real. Let me go to this quick break, brother. Uh, Go ahead. go ahead, Latrice. Go ahead, real quick. No, it wasn't me. Okay, no, no, okay. Yeah, let me go quick break. All I, yeah, all I was gonna say real quick was just that uh, you know it, the bad thing though is that's all on me. You know the stereotypes I picked were good ones. Now you know if somebody you know if another kid comes around comes along depending on where they want to go, um, you know they could pick the bad one. So you know it's it, it, it's a very uh, you know it's a minefield out there. So you got to be careful with it. Bye, bye. Yeah, very fine line. Uh, let's go to this break. We'll get Brother Aunt coming on after. If you're out there listening and want to get on this morning's discussion, please press 1. we got one more segment. We'll be right back. Listen to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. All I ask is that you think. LNG Technology Services, we are your industry leader in aircraft and heavy equipment repair services. In commercial business for over 15 years, LNG technicians have over 150 years of equipment-specific knowledge and are known industry-wide for returning worn-out, broken, and overused ground support equipment back to the user in working better than new conditions. For a service job done right at a value unparalleled in the industry, contact LNG Technology Services at 478-781-4860. Again, for a service job done right, that number is 478-781-4860. LNG Technologies is a Mental Dialogue Gold member and proud sponsor of the Mental Dialogue community. Welcome back to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show. Again, I'm your host, Montoya Smith, a.k.a. Black Socrates. LNG Technology is one of our gold members. If you love what we're doing on this return of intelligent radio, as I quite often call the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, have a product or service you want to get out, please contact me directly, 404-604-9477, and go to the Mental Dialogue Facebook page and inbox me. We definitely need your support for anybody individually out there who likes what we're doing. You can also support us at mentordialogue.com. Please keep Intelligent Radio on the air. We definitely need your support to do so. We have some. Um, you will also receive things based on the membership level that you choose to support this show. Um, Brother Unk has to get back on the line. Let me see if I can get him back in. 
Area code six seven eight last three nine two seven brother Hunk. I think that's you. If you got three cents more, three more cents yeah. for us, King, please. Oh, the line is yours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, man. Um. So we talked about uh, exclusion, right? And I think y'all kind of said that um, uh, being dependent on, on somebody else is not a problem. And but of course that would be a problem. So so you don't to be dependent on something means that somebody can take that away at any time and any moment. And as a culture of people, you never want your culture dependent on somebody else. Uh, uh, this is really the basis of power. When when a people or a coach becomes dependent on a host, right, that puts you in a situation of not really being able to make decisions that would help move the community forward. And so there's mechanisms in place, right? So your culture, it's not bad to partner up with somebody. Like I think you said it, Montoya, you made the point of, allies right and we should never have problems with having allies that's how the world is actually ran and so because you have an ally doesn't mean you actually become that people that you are aligned with and we see this example with the european union we've seen that that the, the at one time russia and the united states were allied against germany right and then when those alliances just did not make sense uh that changed up uh, and so we should never have that problem. So, so having white people or, 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 or what you consider white culture or, or Japanese to in, in Korean community to have alliances with them, I think that's very, very valuable and very, very important to have. And then when those alliances no longer make sense, then we change up, okay? But your culture, you know what I mean, should always be exclusive, meaning there are certain things that make you who you are in your culture, and those things should not change, not less not changing actually kills the culture, right? So, so a culture should be fluid. You know what I'm saying? It should be able to deal with the environment of that particular moment and that particular time. So culture should never be stuck. It should be fluid. But the culture absolutely should never be ran by another culture. That's the problem. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, that's so, been our real, yeah, yeah, real experience as African-Americans um, due to the transatlantic hmm. slave trade getting ripped you know, that hole in our history is what we're lacking. in. As I kind of mentioned earlier, we're always kind of chasing our own identity. So I think that speaks to what you're talking about. And I will say, um, absolutely, you just define, again, I've read mm-hmm. Dr. King's last words, and you may have as well, but, um, mm-hmm. but that's exactly what he always meant by, that's why I used the word strategic alliance. And it's, mm-hmm. and, uh, that's right. it's basically, you know, they will be necessary, um, but it's called strategic alliance. If it no longer serves you, you break that alliance. So you've spoken to even what Dr. King was speaking about in his last writings, um, in, in a sense, in his last day. So that's absolutely what it means. And, yeah, once the alliance made, to kind of even just throw you, know, put you, throw you out there, Ali, and I'll let you respond, is, you know, if the, again, if the alliance serving you, then y'all are both dependent on each other or whatever. And again, once, so dependent right. in that sense. But, yeah, dependent, which you already agreed to, Ali. You know, you definitely understood being dependent to the point where somebody has power over you. You didn't agree with that. But I want to let Ali kind of jump in because, again, okay. I think he prompted um, that part of the discussion. So, Ali, any thoughts to what you hear, Brother Uncle, okay, having to say? Yeah, happy to jump in there, Montoya. Yeah, I, I love the idea of alliances, and I think that maybe is a better word to use than even some of the things I was saying earlier around getting, you know, buy-in and support. You know, we, we definitely need those types of partnerships, and a partnership is a joint commitment of people who have like-mindedness and have the same vision, and, and seeking that out is going to be very important as we move these forward. So totally agree. Um, I do want to answer the question, though, 
of whether or not I believe that my son is black or white? The answer is yes, you know, and I think that he has to understand that and he has to be educated about whatever his culture is. And that culture is sometimes going to be a little confusing. There's a lot of people who think there's no such thing as white culture. There's only, you know, ethnic or minority cultures. So let me leave it at that real quick. I got some background noise. I don't want to interrupt the call. No, no, you're doing good. No, you're all right, King. Um, any thoughts on what Ali down? Thank you, brother. I'm going to let the um, – we only got a few more minutes, so I'm going to let the guest right, jump on good. what you We're had back. to say. Yeah. No, no, all absolutely right. not. I appreciate hey, it, King. Hey, that I... was good. All yeah, right. go ahead. No, I, I was – No, go ahead. Um, what did you – no, what were you about to say? You, I think you were about to say something. One last thing. Go ahead. Oh, um, I don't know. It, it just it, it just ran past my head. It's all good, but go ahead. And, okay, uh, no problem. Thanks a lot for the three cents, though, King. Thanks for getting back in. All right. All right, uh, we got a little time. If anybody else wants to get jump in, you got to press that one. Let us know you want to speak. Um, but any thoughts from you, Latrice, on uh, what you heard Ali and brother bring to the table? Hey Smith, I'll jump in hey, right bro. quick. Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah. All right, yeah, yep, I, I mean, I, I completely, I, I, I completely agree with the young man that just that just got off the line. Um, he's right. You, you got to be careful with who. Uh, who you depend on, who you make allies with. He's absolutely right. Um, and, and that's one reason why, you know, when you, when you start these movements, when you start, you know, when you start a business, when you, you know, whatever it is you're doing, you know, you accept help where you can get it. But as you evolve, then you want, you want to make sure you keep bringing in people that are like-minded and have the same goals in mind, you know. And so it, 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 even if a white man comes in and helps you out to a certain point, once that help is no longer needed and you see someone else out there that may be able to help you a little bit more, you have to be willing to kind of move it around a little bit. Um, but what you can't do is just isolate yourself and say, you know what, the only applicants I'm taking are black. You know, and, and that was the only thing that I was trying to say is you, you don't want to fan the flames of racism, but at the same time you want to take the help when it's available and aligns with your goal. Uh, the moment, no, the moment it doesn't align... Then you move on, you know. Yeah, now that's strong. Let me throw this challenge out there for two for anybody that may be listening. Uh, Latrice, I got you back on. Sorry about that. Um, the challenge, and it's, it's related to exactly what you're talking about right now, Scott, and this is something that I've said to some people, um, you know, on, on a, at our live experience for those that are in Atlanta. I highly recommend April 19th, the Mental Dialogue Live Experience. If you like what we're doing on the show, we do it on another level live at Urban Grind, which is a black-owned coffee shop here in the Atlanta area. But what I've said to people at the live experience, Scott, in relation to what you're talking about as well, when it comes to even our cultural identity, specifically for us as African-Americans, in a sense, having to fight for it and learn it in, in a country that's not going to just give it to you or share it with you based on its, its, its abhorrent history. Like, that's a reality to why that is the case and why we have to, in a sense, learn of ourselves. And, and Ali spoke to it, not coming comfortable with himself until, you know, later in his life. We, we all have to figure it out, and some never do. With that said, when people are in the complete do-it-ourselves or unassisted silo model for those that are pushing for it, the challenge that I even say to them on a psychological level is this. When you see a strategic alliance between a black and a white or a black and an Asian or whoever the case may be, a black and an Indian, um, Indian meaning the country of India, but when you see those alliances, I challenge, in a sense, those who believe in the, in a sense, the, we can do it ourselves and we don't need anybody. What I challenge them is um, they're leery of those alliances, and in this country they have a right to be leery based on history. 
because it was the misuse of those alliances where someone's having power over another. So I get where the leeriness comes from, but what I challenge them in, in today's global society is do not make the assumption that 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 black person, that African-American, is not in that alliance as an equal. And, and to assume that they're not, you're actually believing less of yourself than you're even willing to admit to. Uh, is there any, are y'all catching conceptually why I challenge that thought? That, uh, that, um, that, that, because a lot of times those who are saying we can do it ourselves, they're professing this ultimate love of, of, of us as African Americans, as black people, and saying we're this, we're kings, we're, you know, they, they label it, but then they're leery of an alliance. And I'm saying quite often you're leery because of psychologically you don't see our own as an equal. You assume that that other person can get the best of that person, whereas that they're not smart enough to do the very thing Brother Unk said, when that alliance no longer serves them, just move move along to the next one. Again, I'm just kind of bringing, again, the mental dialogue to the table from a psychological standpoint. Um, matter of fact, let's, I'm going to let you start in on my thought, if you, don't, if you will. Um, I think that's a very important thought. Oftentimes we unconsciously um, minimize Ourselves, as, as African Americans, we, we unconsciously buy into some of those stereotypes. Um, we're surprised, you know, sometimes being surprised you see a black person who's in first class on an airplane and things of that nature. So I think we do have to be mindful in, um, in how we view ourselves and, and believe, you know, we, we espouse these things. We're kings, we're, king, we're queens, we're uh, capable of greatness. But is it just lip service or do we believe it? So we have to really begin to believe those things and understand that, you know, in a lot of these alliances, black people are in them as equals and um, because we do, we are capable of achieving greatness. So I absolutely agree with you. Now, thank you for those thoughts. I think what has been consistent amongst all of us is the idea that it, it is only smart to enter an alliance as an equal, and I think we definitely have enough history in this country um, to know that if you're entering depending on, you know, whoever that is, that that's probably not going to work out in your favor because it's already starting out structured in the other person's favor. But I think we've all come to an agreement there. Uh, Scott, the one we got a couple of minutes. Scott, the one challenge I didn't get to jump with, jump on you with is I will say this to you, and we can't we can't explore because we only got a couple of minutes. Is the idea of when we say experiencing racism from both sides. I would just challenge you that that's more bigotry and discrimination. Black people are absolutely capable of being bigoted. Um, racism, I always attach it to a power structure, and that's not something that African Americans typically have. Highly recommend that you go um, listen to the show, Can Black People Be Racist? Uh, one of our past shows. So just throwing it out there. But thank all of you for being on. Um, Scott, I'll go ahead. If there's any closing, uh, just a quick closing thought, or if, you, if either of y'all, any of y'all have any public information that y'all like to share, how that people can follow you, just make it real quick. Got a minute and a half. So thank you, Scott, for being on and showing right. you a lifesaver this morning. Appreciate you, King. Yeah, I'll be quick. Uh, first off, Ollie, man, don't worry about your kids. They're more resilient than you think. And, uh, you know, they, they, they'll be able to pick it up and move forward. I'm sure you've raised them right, so they'll be able to handle it. Second Thank you, off, uh, Second off, to Mick, uh, I think his fist was in the air. Um, <laughs> and last off, to uh, Smith, <laughs> Smith uh, hey, look, I, I completely agree with your last statement there. And, you know, the, the biggest pull from that is believe in you, be you, and, and things are going to work out. But uh, realize it's going to take work to get there. That's all I got. All right, Ali, 
floor is yours. Yeah, I just appreciate the opportunity to be on. And, um, you know, I, I don't have a lot of fear. I just want to be cautious and open-minded and make sure that I consider, you know, both who my person is and also, and also the way that I want to raise my kids, you know. Thank you, brother. Uh, no, nah, great conversation. Patrice, we got about 20 seconds. I'm going to close the show with a cut um, in, in that I think just opens up the minds of our listeners and is in reference to taking it out of black and white. I wanted to share it earlier on the show, but I didn't get a chance, so I'm going to share it for the end of the show. But, Latrice, thank you uh, for being on with us, Queen. You're welcome. You're listening to the Mental Dialogue Talk Show, where all I ask is that you think uh, for those online, you have to listen to the replay. For those listening on the phone line, um, listen to this last cut. I think it's just a cool perspective to open up our minds on this morning's conversation outside of black and white. We'll see you all next Saturday. All I ask is that you think. question that's been asked of me my entire life and it's a tough one for me to answer because it could relate to my race I'm mixed race my religion my family is two religions I remember when I was three years old I was in the mall with my mom and one of the clerks addressed her as my babysitter I guess because she's white (laughs) and then at the same time I would go to Indian weddings on my dad's side of the family, but not understand a single word of the entire Hindu ceremony. When I was a little girl, I went through this phase where I wanted more than anything to be as Indian as possible. I wanted to know everything about the culture, the, the outfits, the religion, the language. I remember my parents didn't really have time to teach me about this culture. My dad was in medical school and working really hard so he couldn't teach me the language so they bought me this rosetta stone six cd rom package to learn hindi it was an objective cop-out as i grew older i got really tired of answering this question what are you i didn't want to be complicated or difficult to categorize so i focused on the things that i could control school career my future. All of this changed when I got a phone call one night and I found out that my Indian grandfather had passed away. And this wave of confusion and frustration and sadness just hit me that I'd never be able to have a conversation with my grandfather in Hindi, which was, you know, something I hadn't really put much effort into in a while, but had always dreamed of. The next thing I knew, I was on a plane to India. This place I'd wanted to go to so badly when I was younger, like begged my parents. And here I was freaking terrified to go. Being Indian was something flashy and cool that I had wanted delivered to me in a very specific way. When in reality, my dad had given it to me as much as he possibly could have. My hard work ethic, my ability to put my head down and get things done and to believe in a dream that's bigger than anything that's around me. On the day of the funeral, we went to the River Ganges. It's where the majority of Indian families travel to deposit the ashes of their loved ones. And I kind of expected it to be a little bit spooky or grim or just 
really depressing, and it was the exact opposite. It's the most colorful place I've ever been in my life.